Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. in August, an opinion piece caught my eye. The title of the piece was Scientists Seek Answers, Why Do We Love Football? It was such a great piece, y'all. And Liz, Rachel, and I decided right then and there to reach out to the author, Dr. Matthew Goldenberg, and invite him to be a guest on Bell Curve. Well, hello, Dr. Goldenberg. Hi, it's really good to be with you guys. Well, we are happy that you have joined us today. And as I, I think you kind of, you mentioned um, before we started recording today that you'd kind of looked at our show and looked at what we're about. And so, you know, that we try to talk about, we talk about everything under the sun and we pride ourselves on doing it with an eye to research and what the best minds of our time are saying. So that led us right to you. And uh, just a little background on on Dr. Goldenberg for our listeners today. He is an MD, a psychiatrist who has been on the faculty at Yale and the staff of Yale New Haven Hospital since 2013. Prior to arriving at Yale, he was a faculty member at U-Shoes, as we like to call it in, in the Air Force back in my uh, military days, the Uniformed Services University. Uh, he has also been a faculty member at Dartmouth Medical School. His CV is a whopping t- 10 pages. It is packed and chock full of all sorts of incredible experiences, both the uh, faculty experiences um, and, and his experiences writing. A native of Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. Goldenberg graduated from Yale College in 1999 with a degree in history and received the Potter and Clements Prizes for his senior thesis. And as I look through your CV, Dr. Goldenberg, there were just a lot of kind of sports where you're diving into psychiatry and your field through the medium of sports. Dr. Goldenberg received his medical degree from Yale in 2003 and then completed residency training in general psychiatry at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill where he also served as a resident. He is the author of A is for Artisanal, an alphabet book for the hip modern baby. And you can find that on Amazon. So welcome, welcome, welcome. And I just am going to kick it off today. We have tons of questions for you, Dr. Dr. Goldenberg. And just to kind of give you just a little background, our fans know this, but in case you weren't able to listen to all our shows, we are all huge football fans. I come from a football family. My father played football. My brother played football at Alabama. If you look at any of our social media, you would see football pictures, Liz at football games, me at football games. In fact, Rachel and Pepper, her husband, and my husband, John, and I, we are all going to the Tennessee game in a few weeks. So that should be fun. So with that, we'll just kick it over to you and just ask the first and main question. Why do we love football? Well, that's a that's a big question, and obviously, uh, I think there are a lot of a, a lot of reasons. You know, I I grew up in in Birmingham, as you said, and uh, although I never played football, uh, and I went to a high school that was one of the few in the state that didn't have a football team, football, having grown up in Alabama, was an essential part of part of life. And I think for for to one explanation for why we. Uh, why we like football so much is because that's what we've been socialized to do. That's that's a major part of our sort of the social fabric. Uh, this doesn't surprise anyone uh, either. Uh, you know who's lived in Alabama. It surprises a lot of people who don't live in Alabama, I suppose. But about how big a deal it is. 
I mean, that's what uh, people look forward to all week. Uh, that's what we talked about in school at lunch all week. Monday and Tuesday were for, for debriefing the game prior previously. Thursday, Friday, we're talking about the upcoming game. We all know this as well, but you know the first question you're asked was when you're a kid at school is who are you for? And they're really <laughs> at the time there were only two answers, right? Alabama or Auburn. I mean, there was an occasion the occasional person from out of state who might have been from for Georgia or something like that. But and so I think it really is uh, sort of socially a uh, big deal. Uh, now, why is it socially a big deal? What what in particular is attractive about sports? I think you can think about it from from other levels too. And, and what the piece was that you referenced was about was mostly about sort of psychologically why we, um, why football uh, might be appealing. And then some of the underlying biological explanations for, uh, for that. So there are other reasons that, that may explain the particular appeal of a sports fandom and uh, in general and football more specifically that we can talk about. So you began your article with a reference to Warren St. John's book, Grammar Jammer, Yellow Hammer, which is a great book. <laughs> a great yeah, book. Yeah, I love it. It's one of and my you, favorites. I love it. And you <laughs> you read it like in a day. I did. I did. Yeah. It was um I was just starting my residency at, at UNC Chapel Hill and I still remember I, I sat out at the time Borders was in business and I had bought the book at Borders and I they had a little cafe outside cafe there and on a on a rare weekend day off, I sat there and read the book uh, essentially in one sitting. I might have gone, gotten up and gone to the bathroom or something in between, but but yeah, it was it was great. And I, I mean, it resonated with me for for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I'm an Alabama fan, and so the book is about is about the 1999 season. Warren is an excellent writer, and he asked a lot of the same questions that I wondered about, which is why do we care so much? And gave some examples, some really hilarious examples of of some fans who really care very deeply. And one of the anecdotes that I didn't discuss in the piece, but that I that I really enjoyed from his book really personally resonated with me. He, um, like me, grew up in in Birmingham, an Alabama football fan, and like me, had gone to school in, in the Northeast. He had went to college at Columbia. And he describes how he went to Columbia football games and essentially no one was there and couldn't imagine why nobody would, I mean, wasn't that what somebody was supposed to do on, on Saturday during, during uh, the fall and when you're in college is go to the football game. And although I'm a few years younger than he is, I had the exact same experience when I went to, to college. Uh, I went to Yale and I remember going uh, my freshman year, uh, the first football Saturday, going up and down the hallway in my dorm, knocking on doors, asking people if they wanted to go. And it's like nobody wanted to, to go to the football game. And I just couldn't understand how that was possible. And so that was another reason that that book really personally resonated with me. But you know, if, so in sat Saturdays down here, obviously, we all get it. It's the football. But what fascinated me about your article was that you were basically pointing out these human behaviors and needs and sort of these cognitive things that happen that maybe it's football for us, but maybe it's hockey up north. What's going on in our brains and our humanity that wants to be a part of football here or something else elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. So I think uh, it is in Alabama, it's football, but the concepts could be certainly applied to, to other sports fandom. You know, I think one of the ways to, to think about it is identifications you know, in terms of why do we like sports so much? Well, we really identify with a specific team. And so whether that's Alabama football or Yankees baseball up here or UNC basketball, we become essentially part of it. As a fan, we become part of it. And even uh, you can hear me use that pronoun, we, you know, when we talk about sports, it's we not. We won. It's not, we exactly. lost. 
exactly. <laughs> it's we won or we lost. Um, it's not, it, you know, it's, it becomes very, uh, very personal uh, to us. And so I think that's part of the appeal. You know, the process of identification is it's not inc- entirely clear how that happens, but it happens pretty quickly as, as, as uh, or can happen pretty quickly. And, and then we really see ourselves as, and see our team as an extension of, of us. One of the things that you got into is this rooting interest in your team being a diversion mm-hmm. uh, in a world that's pretty tame. And I thought about that because uh, Rachel, for example, what's the name of that fitness regime regimen oh. that you do? Regime regimen that you do. I'm part of CrossFit now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> she climbs ropes and she mm-hmm. jumps up on boxes. And I was a member of the military. I was in the Air Force, and that's mm-hmm. it's one of the it's the tamer of the forces. But it's still, I had opportunities to deploy and put myself in situations. And you know, Liz is you know also has a foot in the fitness industry as a um, instructor. And you know, we all. We kind of want to not be so tame. And I that resonated with me. Life is sometimes just feels too tame, too dang tame. I, I, that re- I thought a lot about that football and, well, let's just say call it team sports as a diversion. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something cathartic about about it. You know, one of the things that I, uh, especially given my professional my professional life and my identity, I don't have an opportunity to to express raw emotions very very often. And in fact, the bleachers are are one of the safe spaces to do that. Where where else can I can I sort of let off a lot of energy, whether it's yelling at a referee or or encouraging my team or or singing a fight song. Uh, so I think those kinds of things, the bleachers are a, uh, a safer space for that. I also think that, you know, for although it sounds like the three of you have some built-in excitement or have 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 cultivated some some exciting elements to your uh, to your life, uh, I do think that one of the things that is in some ways uniquely appealing about about sports as as entertainment is that you don't actually know specifically what's going to happen. I mean, you, yeah, we know that Alabama is going to beat New Mexico State um, probably <laughs> by, by a lot, but that, uh, that there's some novelty there. It's not necessarily routine. And every 30 seconds in a football game, there's an opportunity for something really good to happen or something really bad to happen. So there's some, there's some fluctuations and some excitement that in many of our lives, there's not necessarily all that much variation or excitement um, or uncertainty day to day. It's funny because the way that you phrase it in your article just literally made me laugh out loud that the bleachers provide fans a less complicated space where we can more comfortably display our more primal selves. (laughs) I I laughed so hard at that because I thought, yeah, that's really it. You know, it seems like there are only a few societal safeguards probably keeping all of us from devolving from respectable, law-abiding, polite people into absolute (laughs) animals. Like shut down the electricity, make food and water scarce, put our kids' lives at risk, and we're probably going to go, you know, walking dead primal in ways we never <laughs> thought we would. But I mean, so football lets us get primal probably in a good way. And you, you know, maybe even strutting it out a little like, like peacocks, you know, you talk about mm-hmm. burging. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so that's uh, the it's an acronym that that uh, for uh, basking in reflected glory that a psychologist uh, came up with. And essentially merging is the idea that when our team does something good, when we win, we're much more likely to publicly identify with with the team. So a good example, a good personal example, or I guess, of not not working is when I, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago uh, to go to the national championship game down in Tampa between uh, Alabama and Clemson, which Clemson won at the, the last oh. second. 
and you know, on the way down there, I was I was wearing my Alabama gear. You know, I had my Alabama sweatshirt, et cetera. On the flight back the following morning, there were a lot of people wearing Clemson gear in the airport, but me and the other Alabama fans had had packed away our Alabama our <laughs> Alabama gear. Uh, and it's not that I didn't identify with Alabama, but that's not exactly how I wanted to be known at that moment. And had Alabama, you know, stopped the last touchdown drive and won the game, you bet I would have been wearing my Alabama sweatshirt on the plane ride back. Well, didn't you say that some research shows that after the after a win, people even think of themselves as what, like more attractive? Is that right? Abs- yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which is, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of irrationality there, right? Why would why would you know the <laughs> the outcome of a game that I didn't play in affect my self-esteem, but it does. It does. I, we've talked a lot about the kind of positive and community building aspects of, of sports fandom, but what about, is there, you talk about schadenfreude in your article as well. Is there any you know, lasting negative impact of reveling in the defeat and despair and failure of others? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, well, good I, question, Liz. Great question. <laughs> I or can her. I just keep can I just keep uh, making fun of Tennessee as much as possible? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I've I've been thinking about that. I just read a book by a psychiatrist colleague of mine uh, called The Rabbit Effect, but basically uh, espousing compassion and love for for other people and and saying that that's one of the problems we have in the in the world is not enough not enough of that. And so actually, uh, I just finished reading that this morning. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about exactly that question, like, well, then why, why you know, I mean, I, that resonates. And yet I do get pleasure out of the misery of, I don't know about other people, but well, in some cases, other people. I mean, when Urban Meyer loses, I, I really, that, that makes me. Just warms that, your heart. Exactly, exactly. And <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I mean, is that is that a problem? I mean, uh, you know, I'd like to think maybe I'm getting those similar to what we were discussing earlier, that sort of primal uh, tribalism out in a in a way that's at least diversionary or, or healthier than if I were to, to really take pleasure in, in my neighbor's misfortune, for example. But I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for, for the, the potential benefits of schadenfreude, other, <laughs> uh, but it certainly is a real concept. I mean, we certainly do get pleasure out of Tennessee losing to, to Georgia State. Uh, yeah. And, you know, maybe we get it out of our system in the fan context and not exercise it in daily life, which it's really, you know, you don't exactly. want to. Exactly. Maybe, maybe, so, maybe that's the benefit. Is there any piece of this, like for y'all that you ever get annoyed at being so predictably human? Like, do you ever look at it and be <laughs> like, I wish I were not so predictable. I want to be beyond this human need. And then you just, you're like, no, nah, but I, I need this. Like, I, I'm, I'm no better. I, I, I'm, I need community. I need a tribe. Personally, there's a lot of me that, that, that wants to, especially when my team loses, that wants to escape from that and to, to say like really this doesn't matter and to sort of talk my way out of that that kind of I guess hum, uh, humanness you know I have a, a not a Yale uh, excuse me not a Alabama football story but a Yale basketball story which is going to resonate less I'm sure with your with your listeners but a few years ago Yale had not made the NCAA tournament in basketball for decades and decades and they were on the cusp and needed a win over a team that wasn't very good to secure the championship and get get an NCAA bid again for the first time since like the 1960s first time in my lifetime and uh, through a series of unfortunate events in the last minute of the game they ended up losing at the buzzer and I still remember I was at the game and I still uh, I was staying it was up in New Hampshire and I was staying at a friend's house that night and I still remember sort of lying in bed after that loss like ruminating about the the events of that last minute and like how things could have gone differently etc and 
all I wanted to do was like, stop thinking about it, stop thinking about it. Like, and I, and I couldn't stop thinking about, uh, and stop ruminating about it. Well, I think Alabama and our Auburn fans both will res that will resonate because Alabama <laughs> and Auburn are both basketball schools these days. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Hey, there's always next year for Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> and we're actually a, a little bit of a mixed audience. I think Rachel, Rachel leans a little bit Auburn, right? Oh, Shouldn't leans a little. Uh, uh, this is where part of my, my struggle comes in y'all. I mean, every y'all understand it's a big deal if you're a mixed marriage, a mixed marriage, meaning an <laughs> Auburn fan, an Alabama fan. And here's where some of this human stuff comes in, because I really want to be part of my nuclear tribe, which is my husband and my children gathering on a Saturday around the Alabama game. They've got the food. All the momentum is on my husband's side here, right? They're all excited. They don't want to watch the Auburn game with me. So part of that tribal thing, I want to be with them. But the loyalty in me, I mean, my grandparents, my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, everybody forever has gone to Auburn. I didn't go to Auburn. But I feel like I just can never and never will admit any sort of I'm an Alabama fan, even though sort of partially. I'm like, well, you know, this is kind of fun. Like, I want to watch the game, too. So. <laughs> So you were getting into this just a second ago, and I want to take it just a little further because this is the part of your article that I had to stop and belly laugh. Rationalization. It's the process by which we seek to justify failure. And we do try, we really encourage our audience, our listeners to be kind to themselves. So, and rationalization sometimes is a part of that. However, Texas fans like to say they would have beaten Bama in 2009 if only Colt McCoy hadn't been injured. Well, he wasn't, and you didn't. <laughs> I just had to laugh out loud at that because I remember leaving that football game in California at the Rose Bowl, and there that talk was everywhere. And I remember thinking, we got to get out of here. There's going to be a fight because they were – so mad about Colt McCoy getting injured. And, and that, I mean, that it, it, it was palpable. Absolutely. I was there at that game as well. And, and uh, you know, I was finding it very frustrating, maybe because there was some truth to it, but also that it was somehow delegitimizing Alabama's national championship. And so I was getting very frustrated and I wasn't on the verge of fighting. I don't think that's not my nature, but, it, but, uh, if, but, but I was certainly getting, uh, uh, getting irritated, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we tend to, uh, I mean, from a, from the Texas fans point of view, you know, admitting that your, that your, your team was inferior or that they lost fair and square is, is painful. And, and given what we'd said about identification earlier, you know, it makes us feel less, it makes us feel less attractive, uh, it makes us feel less, lesser overall. And so if I can come up with an alternative explanation, well, uh, the only reason, you know, we would have won except for except for this, if I can rationalize the, the loss, it helps sort of deflect some of the some of the negativity off of uh, the feelings about myself. So another really funny part of the article was the beginning where you talked about the couple. Can you can you just say why that it, this is the couple that that missed the important event. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can you, why did you, why did you include that? Why did you think that was funny? I mean, t tell our audience kind of what happened there. Well, so, uh, you know, it's a story that, that I think I had heard even before I read it in uh, Warren St. John's uh, book. Um, but I sort of had thought of it as apocryphal. I don't think I thought it was necessarily uh, true, but he ended, he managed to track down the actual uh, people that it happened to. And, and my understanding of the story is that it was a couple who, whose daughter was, was getting married and she scheduled her wedding for the third Saturday in October for the Alabama Tennessee game. And 
they chose to go to the game rather than uh, <laughs> rather than go to the wedding. That um, is, I mean, I'm going to say this about the wedding. That is not good form to schedule your wedding on a game day. Bad etiquette in the <laughs> and exactly. I don't know if you remember if you remember the the book, but one of the things that Warren talks about in the book is that when when people hear that story in Alabama, most people's reaction is not anger towards the parents; it's anger towards the daughter. Like, How what, could what she, was she, she what, what was she thinking? Why would she do that? <laughs> Didn't she know that that was? A, I mean, what you you can all, you get married on a bye weekend or in the spring. You do not get married during a football or a Saturday. Thursday or a Thursday night. Exactly, and certainly not on the Tennessee game. Uh, you know, I mean, pick New Mexico State if you're going to do it. Really, this is the parents' fault. They should have raised her better. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, it's clearly an act of, uh, of not just passive aggression, of aggression on the daughter's part to get to schedule her her uh, her wedding on that Saturday. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about something. I feel like probably at, at this moment in time, the word tribe has mm-hmm. negative and positive connotations. So maybe it's got a great connotation in some context. I'm thinking in the fitness world, in business, entrepreneurship, but in others, politics, maybe even religious communities and so forth, the term tribalism really has a negative connotation. So what is your take? Is this a scenario where the word has gone in one direction, but the idea is still solid? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think as you're describing it, it's a, it is a, the concept is a, a mixed bag on the one hand, but I do, well, let me back up. It is a mixed bag. I think on one hand, it can be very positive in terms of, of finding a, some commonality with a group of people. Uh, the problem with tribalism, though, is that it, it necessitates um, othering of um, people who are not, uh, not in that tribe. And I think that's uh, where it can be, in some ways, uh, fun in, in terms of uh, football, where you know, the consequences of my being an Alabama fan mean that I can look at Tennessee fans and, and see them as, as other. And it's, uh, but, but it becomes problematic when we start thinking about it in terms of, of religion or, or politics. So I do think it is a, uh, it is a mixed bag and, and we can sort of, I mean, I think by looking at the tribalism associated with, uh, with football, uh, with sports fandom, I think we can actually understand in some ways, other other tribalism because it's easy for easy for us to sort of see our see some of our behaviors. Um, so I'm going to, for example, um, when Alabama plays plays Tennessee, I'm going to uh, pretty much be biased to think that any call that goes against Alabama is a uh, a problem um, or is is somehow is somehow a negative. It's not really objective. Uh, it's predictable, as you as you had sort of uh, said that said earlier. I think that. It's we, we see that in sports and don't make that much of it. But when we see it in politics, it's problematic where we can't sort of get out of that that tribal thinking where everything that one side does is good and everything that another side does is bad. Oh, I love that. It almost has like an inoculation effect mm-hmm. that if we can observe ourselves in the sphere of football, which is quite tame, we can at least be aware of what behaviors we might have a proclivity toward in other realms where the stakes are quite higher. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually one of the one of the reasons that I use, and, and I, I talked about this a bit in the article, but uh, I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm also on the faculty at Yale Medical School where I teach uh, uh, medical students about psychological concepts. And I find actually that using examples of sports uh, and sports fandom is a good way to, to sort of personalize and to have students sort of recognize in themselves, those students who are sports fans, recognize certain uh, behaviors, many of which are in some ways irrational in the, in the sports world, that then 
actually um, have correlates outside of the sports world that may be more that may be harder to identify or harder to discuss. Uh, and so I think it actually is a very accessible way to 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 identify and, and talk about things. Is there one that comes to mind that is maybe like a, an example where people have a hard time getting their minds around, but football helps us understand it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I, I referenced just a, just a minute ago was the concept of splitting and seeing things as all good or all bad, uh, which is a fairly primitive way to view the world. Uh, but we oftentimes, especially when emotions are high, we often will do that. We'll, we'll see people as, you know, a boss or, or a, a partner as, as all good or all bad and idolize them or, or devalue them. And we do that in sports all the time. I mean, I think, you know, that Nick Saban is, is all good um, until uh, that he... That would be Lord, that would be Lord Saban. Exactly. Wait a minute, exactly. you mean Satan? <laughs> Hail Saban. <laughs> exactly. Until and if we were LSU fans, we would have thought thought the world of him. But now he's evil incarnate, right? Um, if you're not an Alabama fan, and so I think that's a, that's one example that we we tend to do that in life. Uh, it's easier to see in football than it is maybe in politics or or our personal lives. Taking what you're talking about, like you said, you use that as an accessible way to talk about these issues of tribalism and and splitting and that kind of thing. What are some tactics I guess we could learn from our proclivities with sports to make ourselves better in the real world. Um, so you say, you know, it's, <laughs> I have, I have friends that we just don't watch football together because I know it's not going to go well because I went to the wrong college. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> is, is there a way to, to, to change our behavior, to, to observe our behavior in sports, see the negative parts of it and make sure we don't let that carry over in other ways? Yeah, that's a great question. I I I don't uh, I don't necessarily have a have a great answer. Um, I do think that as we talked about earlier, sports is a safe space to to let some of these primal urges out so that they don't then spill over. Might be uh, might be one answer. I think the other answer potentially is that it's consciousness raising. Like, oh yeah, I do do that, or oh wow, yes, uh, and and so that if you're aware of it, that you're doing it in sports, um, and at least that's where your first first recognition is, then maybe you're, then maybe you're more likely to accept that you might do it in, in other parts of your life. And, and if that behavior needs to be, uh, to be modified, then at least you're, you, uh, you recognize it in yourself. I, so I, I will say the the 2013 iron bowl was a huge gut check for me because y'all on the kick six, I threw the biggest fit I think I've ever thrown. I was like, it was so unlike me. I just completely lost my cool. And that is just not who I want to be. <laughs> and I went for this long walk in the, you know, the cool November air afterward. And was just like, this is football. Yes. I went to school there. I met my husband there. I, you know, I went to every home game while I was a student. I like, this is really important to me, but at the end of the day, it's football. But then every year, every year since then, I still find myself getting so rabid about it. But I have to do like every time we lose, I'm just like, OK, thankfully, it's not that often. But every time we lose, I just have to be like, OK, it's just football. So maybe that's another solution is that you've, you've identified through football some some self-soothing techniques. Um, oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> well, what, what happens in the body? I mean, you're what what? What physio- What is going on physiologically when we're scoring a touchdown out in fandom, not on the field, but out in fandom? What's go- what, what things are happening in the body that make us feel great or make us not feel great? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so there are neurochemical changes, probably some dopam dopaminergic releases, uh, which are generally uh, positive, uh, associated with positive emotions. Um, in some ways, not dissimilar from um, from what someone who uses drugs, for example, gets um, at least early on when they start when they uh, when they uh, start using a substance of uh, of abuse, sort of a, a positive uh, brain uh, brain change. I think also. We also know that there are hormonal changes. Uh, so, so there's some some data, and I talked about this in the article. But when your team wins, especially in male fans, uh, their uh, testosterone levels uh, in the body go uh, go up. Um, Why does you know, that not surprise me? <laughs> and 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 vice versa. Um, you know, losing losing causes a, a a decrease. You know, and it doesn't surprise any of us that there are physical changes in the body um, uh, when when we're watching sports. I mean, uh, uh, and I think that's part of the, when we talked about, about sort of psychologically the, uh, the benefits, but you know, we, our hearts race, um, you know, I, I'm an athlete myself and, and, um, I'm a runner and, you know, I've been running a number of half marathons this past year. Probably the, the, the most cardiovascular exercise I get is when I'm watching a game, a close, uh, close game. Uh, you know, my heart races, my, you know, I flush, um, and so, you know, there are clearly, clearly bodily changes that, uh, uh, that happen. I read an article several years ago now by Rick Bragg, and it was published on AL.com as well. And he was talking about how one of the things that makes football such a big thing in the South is, especially in Alabama, it was one of, for a long time, it was one of the only positive things going for us. It was mm -hmm. one of the only mm -hmm. things that we could, it, dis, despite our political differences, um, differences over uh, segregation policy and that kind of thing, that was all this bad, horrible stuff that was going on in the first half of the 20th century. This was the one thing that we were good at, and especially after the desegregation of, of Alabama when, when our football program really, really took off. It was something that we could all rally around. Is that, do you think that's one of the reasons that football is such a bigger thing in the South than it might be in the Northeast or other parts of the country? Because it's something that brought us together when when other stuff couldn't. Yeah, I think that that's that's probably uh, probably true. I mean, there's some historical data to support that. So I think you know football really. Um, uh, my understanding historically is that football really started to get its grip on the state in 1925 when Alabama beat Washington, I believe, in the in the Rose Bowl, um, which, uh, again, was sort of a celebration of a otherwise maligned uh, state. You know, I think that the, when I was younger, um, a lot of a lot of restaurants, um, I, I see it less now, although I don't live in the state. So maybe it, maybe I'm um, uh, maybe it still exists. But a lot of the restaurants. Um, uh, and gas stations around town had a picture of uh, the goal line stand uh, against uh, Penn State um, in I think it was 1979 Sugar Bowl in which which Alabama won, and the the imagery there of uh, the South resisting a team dressed in blue from the North mm -hmm. is hard to hard to deny. Um, and so I I think um, absolutely what is Alabama first in? Alabama's first in in not that much when you look at other other uh, compared to other states. You know or 49th and a lot, but football is one thing that we um, we are good at, and um, that we're consistently at the at the top and better than all of these other other uh, states that lord their superiority over us. And so I do think that there's um, there's something to that that you know this is this is what we're good at. This is what we celebrate as a as a reason that sort of culturally the state has em has embraced and continues to embrace uh, football. 
One thing I can say about that is that on my time on the State Board of Education especially, um, I, I served on the Alabama State Board of Education for two terms, Saban's process and his commitment to his commitment to discipline and his process really kind of began to be cross-fed. And I think more and more you see that into other realms, education, business. And I, I think that there's, I think his personal style and which has made him such a winning coach, people recognize it, that it's, it's a lot of discipline. And I think that piece has started to kind of get into the, into the culture of our state in a way that we didn't have before. Does that make mm-hmm. sense at all? Yeah, I mean, I haven't lived there since he's been coach. I watched from afar, but that, uh, but uh, that's interesting. So I want to um, close with this question, um, and it's a question that is uh, for Matt, our, our guest today, as well as my two co-hosts. And and, and whether it's Alabama or Auburn, wh- what's the what's the most unique place that you have ever seen or said Roll Tide or War Eagle, as it were? Because he started your article with that, where you where you say yeah. you know, people have said roll tide in the oddest places, or they've tattooed it, or they put it on their coffins, or <laughs> right. I think there was even a funny television commercial a few years ago about that. Oh. There was there was a great there was a great ESPN uh, advertisement campaign about roll saying roll tide and in the various I think there was somebody in a in a in a, a jacuzzi who was saying roll tide i haven't actually i don't know that i've said roll tide to a stranger in a jacuzzi one of the things that comes to mind though is that this past weekend i was in new york city after and the the game um alabama had just beaten south carolina i watched that game uh and then walked over to to the ticket line uh the discount ticket line to see if there were any uh there were any shows that i was interested in in uh in seeing that night and sure enough, there was a guy in an Alabama in an Alabama hat and his wife in her Alabama um, T-shirt uh, online to get uh, to buy Broadway tickets. And we had, you know, probably a five-minute conversation about about the problems with the defense um, while online for for uh, Broadway tickets, which I thought was pretty uh, pretty telling, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And when you left, you probably said, "Well, Todd." Exactly. Exactly. My husband and I try to travel um, internationally at least once a year, and we always have a challenge of of trying to get. We before the end of the trip, we want to have at least get at least one roll tide, and so usually when, on travel days, my husband will wear an Alabama shirt or sweatshirt or something. And our first trip to Italy a, a couple of years ago, he didn't get one in the airport. We didn't get one when we landed, but in the Coliseum, we got a roll tide from somebody from a different country. Wow. And like the, that was, that was Ro- like the Roman Coliseum. Yeah. The Roman Coliseum. Wow. Um, wow. That was, a, that was a fun one. That was probably my favorite roll tide <laughs> we've ever gotten. So Mary Scott, I'll take your question in a slightly different direction. I credit my marriage to an Alabama hat. So I met my husband Pepper in Washington, D.C. at a G Love and the Special Sauce outdoor concert. <laughs> and so like some mutual friends, kind of two groups of people got, two groups got together and I saw Pepper, and he was very shy, and he had on an Alabama hat, and we were amongst just people from all over the place. And I was like, oh, an Alabama boy, all right. Well, I'm, you know, he's pretty shy. I'm kind of going to just, like, start talking to him and all that. And, I, and if he wasn't wearing that hat, I might not have even, you know. So anyway, that's, I think that's how we started with that Alabama hat. Well, I was standing in a pancake house line in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and 
from way back and and it was like two in the morning. It was the place to go. I was, I was doing an internship in college and I, I, way back from the back of the line and I had on, I had, I had this backpack on from school and it had the Alabama logo on it. And from the back of the line, somebody said, roll tide. And I turned around like without missing a beat and yelled it right back. And everybody in the line between us are like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> but th- that was the that was the one I remember. But uh, Dr. Matthew Bilt Goldenberg, it has been a pleasure to talk with you today. And we are, uh, thank you very much for coming on. It was an interesting, fascinating and um, wonderful discussion. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Matthew, where can we connect with you? Where can our audience connect with you? Uh, sure. So uh, my uh, Twitter is at uh, A-U-E-N-B-E-R-G, uh, which is a old uh, sort of nerdy chemistry joke. So it's A-U being the symbol for Goldenberg. So A-U-E-N-B-E-R-G. And you can connect with Bell Curve on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest at Bell Curve Pod. We have a closed Facebook page as well. We'd love to see you connect there. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps us. 